the National Archives podcast series, The Kitchen Front, Domestic Life in the Second World War, presented by Sarah Hutton. The National Archives receives many inquiries from people interested in the Second World War. If you're interested in the armed forces, there's a tremendous amount of material held here, such as operational records, official records of significant campaigns, and information on men held as prisoners of war and those who received military honours and awards. Where records survive, and by combining documents held here with those still held by their Department of Creation, it's possible to gain a picture of the lives of those who fought for Britain and unearth stories of great bravery and camaraderie, as you can see highlighted in these posters from the Ministry of Information. But what was life like for those not directly involved in the fighting? For men, there was the Home Guard. The Home Guard was operational from 1940 until 1944. It was made up of one and a half million local volunteers, otherwise ineligible for military service, usually owing to age, hence the nickname Dad's Army. They acted as a backup defence force in case of invasion by enemy forces. The Home Guard guarded the coastal areas of Britain and other important places such as airfields, factories and explosive stores. And what about women? Well, as Juliet Gardner explains in her book Wartime Britain, the National Service No. 2 Act became law on the 18th of December 1941. Its terms made Britain the first nation in the world to conscript women. Single women and childless widows between the ages of 20 and 30 were pronounced liable for military service. The age was lowered to 19 in 1943. Women could in theory elect to join one of the women's auxiliary services, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS, the Women's Royal Naval Service, WRNS, or the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, WAAF, or to be directed into industry or civil defence. In practice, this usually meant the ATS or the munitions industry, where labour shortages were most acute. By the end of the year, 125,000 recruits had been called up into the Women's Auxiliary Services to join a larger number who had volunteered. In addition to this, as the prospect of war became increasingly likely and Britain needed to become more independent in terms of food production, more help was needed on the farms, and so the government initiated the Women's Land Army. The Women's Land Army was set up in June 1939, and by September it had over 1,000 members. By 1941, its numbers had risen to 20,000, and at its peak in 1943, over 80,000 women classed themselves as land girls. Numbers did not rise after that as women were needed to make aircraft and were encouraged to take up factory work instead. Women joined the Land Army from all backgrounds, a third coming from London and other large cities. Farm work was hard and the women did all sorts of jobs including hoeing, ploughing, hedging, turning hay, lifting potatoes, threshing, lambing and looking after poultry. A thousand women were employed as rat catchers. 6,000 women worked in the timber core, felling trees and running sawmills. About a quarter were employed in milking and general farm work. Looking at the poster here, Math 5918, you can see that all of these posters carry a clear message of health, but also freedom. The woman here, most likely from a crowded city, is looking out over open, sunny land, and the uniform seems women in trousers, well ahead of a time when the civilian or military woman would be wearing them as an acceptable form of clothing. To what extent this freedom was actually felt is debatable. Many women lived initially with the farmer and his wife themselves. 
Perhaps not all farmers' wives were over the moon at finding some young, pretty girl arriving under their roof, and it is certainly the case that in some instances they were far from welcoming. But in reaction to the isolation experienced by many of the young women, the government arranged for shared sleeping hostels, which although often primitive, did give the women company, and although conditions were often poor and pay was low, many women did enjoy the work. The Women's Land Army remained in existence until 1950. But where are the other women, over 30, with husbands or maybe children? These women were still very much at home. These are the words of Nella Last, written during the Second World War, in a diary which has been kept by the Mass Observation Archive, and you can see her pictured here with her son Cliff during the war. I looked at my own lad, sitting with a paper, and he did not turn a page often. It all came back with a rush. The boys who set off so gaily and lightly and did not come back, and I could have screamed aloud. He has never hurt a thing in his life. It's dreadful thinking of him having to kill other boys like himself, to hurt and be hurt. It breaks my heart to think of all the senseless, formless cruelty. We who remember the long-drawn-out agony of the last war feel ourselves crumble somewhere inside at the thought of what lies ahead. And it is to this that I really want to draw your focus today. Not to those who are away fighting, not to those employed outside the home in war work, but to those left behind, the ones like Nella, worrying, waiting, but above all, managing. How can the records held here at the National Archives help to illuminate the home front, this other domestic front, populated often exclusively by women? At a time in which even Woman's Own, a magazine virtually synonymous with images of female domestic perfection, declared that house pride is no longer the virtue it was, carry on in comradeship with the women who have put it in their pockets to make munitions, work on the land, hold down a man's job, do anything in your capacity to the utmost of your power to hasten victory. I want to explore how managing the domestic, or what I have called the kitchen front, was a significant and important part of the war effort. So as I'm sure you're aware, the National Archives is made up of records which have been generated by central government and they're arranged according to the department which created them in the first place. So what are the sources that you might consult if you're looking for information on domestic life on the home front during the Second World War? Well, I picked out just a few examples for you. Here we've got the Ministry of Education, ED. You might find information here about evacuation, but also about wartime special schools, revealing how children with disabilities are cared for and regarded. MH, the Ministry of Health, a very big department. You can find information here about the emergency medical services, with particular reference to correspondence relating to evacuation, refugees, rest centres, air raid shelters, the medical history of the war, and the planning of measures for the prevention and relief of wartime distress. HLG, which is the Ministry of Housing and Local Government, which comes out of the Ministry of Health, reveals records relating to civil defence, manpower, war damage, again evacuation and billeting, care of children and the homeless, accommodation for emergency hospitals, children's homes, maternity homes, emergency water supplies and other related financial matters. The Home Office, HO, you can find information here about air raid precautions, but also the bomb censuses. MAF, the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries, here you can find documents relating to rationing and also food advice. INF, the Central Office of Information, there are social surveys here, and also pictorial material, propaganda and information leaflets. And BT, the Board of Trade, where you can find information connected to the transportation of food and rationing. 
food and how its sale, consumption and preparation are organised becomes tremendously important to the government at the beginning of the war and indeed throughout. And given that the people who had the most contact with food were women, it formed one of the key parts of life on the domestic home front. As we've already briefly considered when we looked at the Women's Land Army, Britain relied heavily before the war on importing a, a substantial amount of its food from abroad. But food had to take second place to moving the military and war equipment, and food import halved during the course of the early 40s. Various strategies were employed to transport the most possible in the smallest space, and so many canned foods disappeared. Meat had the bones removed, and a lot of food was dehydrated. Gardner suggests that before the war, we brought in with our food imports 3 million tonnes of water a year. Entreaties to the public to grow as much food as they could through the Dig for Victory campaign had a significant effect, but this still wouldn't be enough to ensure that the population was fed in its entirety and that food was distributed in a fair way. And so a system of rationing was brought into effect within a few months of the start of the war. This Ministry of Food Circular here, in INF 1343, explains further. The rationing scheme will therefore, on its introduction on the 8th of January, include bacon and ham, butter and sugar. It will subsequently be extended to meat. These arrangements are in accordance with the plans previously prepared for controlling the distribution of essential commodities down to the consumer. They are designed to ensure to every member of the community an equal share. And here, above this section, you can see that the government earnestly enjoins the public not to make increased demands on retailers before rationing begins. But this, of course, is almost impossible to control. As you can see here in BT1340, the article here is talking about a theft from a food office where 700,000 points vouchers have been stolen. Gardner reports, on the outbreak of war, there had been stories of panic buying and hoarding when chauffeur-driven cars pulled up outside grocer shops and stripped their shelves bare. A grocer in London's East End told of how the shortages are bringing in the rich people from the West End to take the poor people's food. They come in their cars and buy night lights and candles, tinned goods, corned beef and that sort of thing. They go mad on sugar. He reports, I've been rationing sugar for the last three or four days. A good shopkeeper keeps some back for his regular customers. Indeed, many shopkeepers have been operating an informal rationing policy like this one. So when it became official, rationing not only helped the consumer, it also helped the retailer who had been coming under pressure from customers. Everybody received a ration book, similar to the one pictured here in BT13140. It was necessary to register with a particular shop either one for all foodstuffs or individual retailers if preferred, and that would then be the only place where the tokens could be used. This was to try to control the rationing more effectively and to avoid people trying to play the system, as retailers would receive the correct amount of food for the customers who were signed up to him or her. Big institutions would have rations allocated based on the number of people housed there, whereas hotels and boarding houses would expect guests to hand over their ration books for the duration of their stay. People who were not based in one location would be issued with special ration books which took this into account, for example, a soldier going home for a few days on leave. However, the reality of shopping through this period was time-consuming and frustrating, for most houses, this is well before the luxury of the electric refrigerator. 
In fact, many homes would not even have had a larder, and so fresh food could not be stored for long, and shopping needed to be carried out daily, with backup menu ideas which could be used at the last minute, which stretched a long way and had been thought through in terms of ration usage and adaptability for using up leftovers efficiently. This excerpt from a Dig for Victory campaign film demonstrates this, highlighting the cues and the sudden running out of basic items. Do you like standing in a queue for your vegetables, or do you think it's tiring and a waste of valuable time? Do you ever find your long wait has been useless, but supplies of what you want have run out before your turn comes? It's not the greengrocer's fault, it's up to you. Dig for victory. Nella Lars draws on this too in her diary, recording the running out of items, just like in the film where you saw the no tomatoes you've just seen scrawled on the sign. In Nella's case, this particularly amuses her because Mrs Jones' shop, where she lives, is quite well-to-do and is not the kind of shop to take to writing in the windows. She reports, Printed neatly and in extra-large letters, was written, No eggs, no lemons, no onions, no leeks, no paper bags. I wonder how many times Mrs Jones had had to say those words before in exasperation, says Nella, she printed them on the window. Although Nella is essentially behind the rationing system, she's also quick to point out the failures. In 1942, she writes, The present rationing has been a farce. Those who have wanted to be greedy have got more than their share. Much as I dislike coupons and chits, I think it's the only fair way to stop overlapping and grabbing. Eggs are a muddle, for people register with an egg and butter dealer, but get eggs with their grocery list too. I was a bit surprised at my sister-in-law's outlook yesterday. Several times she spoke as if to get more than she was entitled to was a grand game. I said, but Beat, if you take someone else's share, they will have to do without. She said, nonsense, there is plenty of food about, there must be, or else a place could not get it in such quantities. It's only a matter of organising properly. I did not want to upset her and start her nerves off and make her cross, so I did not press the point, much as I would have liked to. As Nella hints, eggs were a particular focal point in the rationing scheme, the main reason being that the alternative dried eggs, which could be imported in large quantities as they took a fraction of the space, were far from popular, and the lack of poultry feed diminished those which could be produced at home, as explained in this government film encouraging the collection of kitchen scraps. I'm not allowed much meal or grain to give you. And we haven't enough kitchen scraps to make a decent meal. You'd better have a talk to my corn merchant. I'm sorry, madam. I'm only allowed to supply you with your rational poultry food. I know it's small. You'd better see the Ministry of Agriculture. All right. Good afternoon. I appreciate your predicament, Mrs. White, but you'll be glad to hear that we found the solution. The government have organized a nationwide collection of household scrap to be turned into chicken feed. It's ration-free 
and it solves the poultry keeper's problems. You'll do your bit, I know, if human beings will do theirs and save every bit of scrap they can. I know they will. Good day. And please accept this small token of gratitude on behalf of the hens. <coughs> The hen, dressed up in women's clothes and given the name Mrs White, is clearly for comic effect, but it also underscores how it is women who need to worry about collecting scraps, and women who will be directly impacted by the shortage of eggs. A lot of work went on at the Ministry of Agriculture and Food to encourage women to use the dried variety of eggs in their cooking, and two of the main sources of information were very common. Let's talk about food, and food facts pictured here in Math 10265. In the first one, the one in the centre, we're enticed in with a promise of how to get that new laid flavour with dried eggs. And the language used is key, trying to evoke a sense of these eggs being as realistic as possible. How about a good plump slice of this delicious savoury egg patty for dinner today? Appetising and extra nourishing, but it contains egg. A substantial main meal, served with a fresh green salad or some lightly cooked greens. It's a perfect meal too. Or even worse, down the side here with the food facts, you've got a list of possible delicious egg dishes you can make with your dried egg. They'll swear they were made with fresh new laid eggs, it claims. Castles in Spain near the bottom look particularly disturbing, but I think the worst one has got to be curried hard-boiled eggs, the recipe for which reads, Grease four small moulds or egg cups, pour reconstituted into moulds, and steam for 15 to 20 minutes or until set. Turn out onto the dish, pour over curry sauce, probably quite a lot, and serve with a border of boiled rice. As these documents show, transmitting food information and encouraging women in particular directions began to claim significant space on the government's agenda. Catherine Knight, the author of Spuds, Spam and Eating for Victory, writes women, but especially those who were primarily housewives, were given unprecedented attention by the authorities. Their role as mothers, and particularly home cooks, was a large concern of the Ministry of Food. The BBC, film flashes, newspapers, magazines, leaflets and cookery demonstration put them at the centre of a sustained campaign of propaganda and information that recognised how important they could be. There were essential troops on the home front. Here you can see a picture of one of those cookery demonstrations in Math 7567, She's got a woman in the centre who's dressed like a cross between a nurse and a lab technician, with a group of women twice her age who probably are very competent cooks, all looking on in awe at how she's managing to cook meals that they may not have prepared with unrationed food. So we've already seen the straightforward use of recipes to push nutritious ways of cooking with ingredients available, but here are two other examples of encouraging women to use the food available in the best way and to eat nutritious, balanced meals. In this one, it's a food fact in Math 10265. It's entitled, How to Fool Your Husband in Three Easy Lessons. And we've got two pictures here. The before picture, which shows um, a couple, well, they've been initially sitting at the table, but now the husband has thrown his dinner aside, he's standing up and he's holding out his hand angrily above his wife. He says, cabbage, cabbage, cabbage. Can't we have something different for a change? And in the after picture, the man sitting much more happily, munching through his food, saying, what's this delicious new vegetable? And the wife, thinking, not speaking, it's interesting in this that she's mute throughout, she thinks, silly goose, he doesn't know it's cabbage. 
There are two interesting strands here. Firstly, that the way to prepare food is to conceal or disguise it. The only reason this man eats the cabbage in front of him is the fact that he doesn't recognise it for what it is. He is, his wife tells us, a silly goose. However, the far more disturbing strand is her need for concealment. When she serves cabbage for what it really is, her husband sends his plate flying across the table and raises his hand as if to strike her, leaving us with the distinct impression, however you try to square it, that if your husband is fussy, he is also violent. And if he is not successfully fooled, this violence can only really be blamed upon the wife herself. For all the apparent comedy in this cartoon, we're left with rather a bitter aftertaste. This Let's Talk About Food in Math 102.65 also veers away from a belief that women could be informed about food with straightforward messages about health and nutrition, rather focusing to wrap up its message in an appeal to female vanity. A woman is pictured, a very beautiful young woman with a fairy godmother above her, and the message is, if you could be granted three wishes about your looks, wouldn't they run something like this? A lovely complexion, a good figure, a lively and attractive personality. And it's this that the woman is to be interested in, not the fact that the food would be healthy or it would be an economic way to feed her family. So perhaps nothing much has changed. In addition to these um, posters and information leaflets, further information was provided through the radio. In the summer of 1940, the home service of the BBC began broadcasting the kitchen front. These were short programmes, usually just five minutes long, and went out on weekday mornings at 8.15am. The idea was that women would tune into these programmes before they went out and did their daily shop. The purpose of the programmes was made clear in the opening statement. It's written here in Math 1027. I'm here to save you money, to save you time, to save you trouble, to tell you of food that there's plenty of and of food that you've got to slow on. Presenters included professional broadcasters, cookery book writers and occasionally housewives themselves. I've taken a few snapshots here. One reads, have you got a clock in your kitchen? I hope so. A clock is one of a cook's most important tools. Another Hello everybody, this is Fruit Week on the kitchen front. I listen to the plum bottling talk on Tuesday and some fruity tips from the radio doctor on Wednesday and I said to myself, well now, what about our old friend apple rings for Thursday? There are also attempts to glamorise unpopular ingredients as you can see here. We used to eat a lot of tripe in Poland. You also have tripe and onions, but we treat it differently and call it flacky and I think you might like it for a change. The programme also relied on fictional characters as presenters, such as Grandma Buggins and the two charladies, Gert and Daisy, played by the two comedians, Elsie and Doris Waters. I've got here a recipe for murky, and this was broadcast around Christmas when housewives were trying to work out what they could give to their family, and it's a cross between mutton and turkey, but also for listeners at the time, it would have chimed a chord because of the frequent use of the word mock to talk about recipes where the key ingredient was actually missing. Now, we do have the scripts to these broadcasts here, as you can see, but we don't have the sound. So I borrowed the sound from the BBC Sound Archives, but the quality is quite poor, so you'll have to struggle to listen. But I thought I'd just play you a little bit so you could get an idea of what it might have sounded like if you were tuning in at 8.15. Daisy? Daisy? Annie, have your breakfast on the table? OK, I'm just coming. Got me doing shoelacing and not. Oh, dear. Undo it for us, will you, girl? Mm -hmm. I can't undo it, and I don't want to cut it. Can't walk about. For all their didactic, sometimes patronising tone, these broadcasts did strive to create a sense of female camaraderie, but failed to take into account the practicalities of life in the home for many women. 
Many women simply could not sit down at this time in the morning and write down recipes. The Women's Voluntary Service are quick to raise this with the Ministry of Food, as you see here in one of their newsletters in Math 102.11. The question of altering the time of the kitchen from talks from 8.15am has been taken up with the authorities concerned. After much deliberation, and for good reasons, this has been found impracticable. For many housewives, it is impossible to sit down with pencil and paper and take down a recipe at that hour. A suggestion has been made, and might possibly be tried locally, whereby housewives at their meetings could discuss these kitchen front talks and make themselves responsible for taking down a recipe on a certain day. This focus on practicality and the reality of women's lives was a key part of the Women's Voluntary Service. Initially set up to assist the Air Raid Precaution Services, its efforts soon spread out to take on a multitude of responsibilities which drew on the talents and capabilities of women who were at home and had experience of working with tight rationing. For example, projects like canteen catering and mobile food units. And in this environment, where many women truly came into their own. Nella writes, At times, when I see such silly waste in the shop windows, I think it's a pity there are no women in the war cabinet. It's taken the powers that be all this time to see the shocking waste of sugar in confectioner's shops and to realise it would be better to let people have sugar for jam. I'd like to have some of them to come and stay for a weekend. I'd show them a few things and tell them what women thought, real, everyday, commonplace women like myself, who had to budget on a fixed income and saw ordinary things wasted and no shortage of unnecessary things. Nella does not get any of the war cabinet over for tea, but her role in the WVS does allow her to use her abilities in the kitchen and her skills in making clothes, not just for her husband and sons, but for visiting soldiers, those bombed out of their homes and local hospitals. The records I've shown you frequently reveal the government's efforts to manage and control food coming into shops, to establish a system of fair purchase and to instruct on cooking in a nutritious way with what is available. And these final documents show you the completion of the circle as they put in place wartime social surveys to monitor how food is actually consumed within the home. This food-related survey contains minute information about breakfast cereal and the ingredients of various meals and forms part of a far-reaching investigation into domestic behaviour which goes as far as the survey I've pictured here relating to sanitary towel usage in RG23-8. What is less clear is the response of women to this advice, information collection and at times nannying. But other sources, such as Nella's diary, do give us an insight into how many women were more than equipped to deal with managing their homes, did not need information to be packaged in a way which appealed to fooling their husbands or looking beautiful, but were actually more than aware of the importance of what was going on around them and how their central position in the home and outside of it, using their domestic skills, was of value. Indeed, for some women, this burgeoning belief in their capabilities begins to shift the very home they have been striving to protect. Nella writes, Tonight I was a bit tired, perhaps, but I got really cross with my husband and told him a few things for the good of his soul. I was tired of doing all the thinking and planning. It was time he grew up. So undignified and tiresome to be so tired and edgy as to lose control of a temper schooled for 30 years. So to conclude, I think what I wanted to get across in this talk today is that there are multiple experiences of the war. There's the experience of the war fighting, an experience of the war working in the Home Guard or working perhaps in a munitions factory. 
but there's also an experience of actually being at home and just waiting and managing day by day. Records at the National Archives provide snapshots of life outside the front line of war. They don't give you the whole picture, but they provide you these little tidbits, these little bits of information which start to reveal stories. And I think that by using the records here, together with other sources, such as those held at local record offices, those held at the Mass Observation Archive and the Imperial War Museum, it's possible to open a window into the home lives of women during the Second World War. This podcast is part of the special series, The Second World War in Focus, marking the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of war. This event was recorded live on the 17th of September 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.